to the Friday, April 26, 2019 edition of On Iowa Politics. This week, a party switcher, King and Christ, and Biden's in. Hi, I'm James Lynch of the Cedar Rapids Gazette. With me today are Brett Hayworth of the Sioux City Journal. Good morning, Brett. Hi, James. Good morning. Thomas Nelson of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, James. And Gazette columnist Todd Dorman. Good morning, Todd. Good morning. You can find us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to On Iowa Politics on iTunes and Stitcher. First up, Steve King again. A couple of days after Christians celebrated the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Steve King said, me too. At a town hall meeting, the 4th District conservative Republican congressman likened himself to Jesus. And he said, quote, and when I have to step down to the floor of the House of Representatives and look up at those 400 and some accusers, you know, we just passed through Easter and Christ's passion, and I have a better insight into what he went through for us, partly because of that experience, end quote. Brett, Congressman King never fails to say or do something that gets him attention and, and rarely in a good way. So how were these comments received? Well, um, from looking at social media, um, we've, I'm just starting to get a few letters that are rolling in here at the journal, but it, well, first of all, it was picked up nationally. Um, we at the journal covered, um, um, he's now in a year where he's having town hall meetings after some years of not having town hall meetings. And we went and there was very limited media coverage, but in the journal, um, I covered this and it was a very eye-opening comment, which of course I, we needed to, to share with readers. Um, it got national traction and became a national story within a few hours of that night on Tuesday. And you had people, as far as how it was received, um, lots of um, derisive comments of, you know, that's just a comparison that, that you do not make, um, you know, tying yourself to having the, in, the insights of what Jesus went through on the weekend that he was crucified. Um, and, you know, there, there were a few, a few King supporters um, that, that he's, you know, that he's been unfairly maligned and unfairly stripped of his committees, and you know there was there was some pushback, but but if you look on Twitter and Facebook and such, and, and our social media feed through tweets and such of the journal, it was you know overwhelmingly, I, I guess, kind of stacked up against him. Do you think this was a, a calculated statement that he knew would get attention of the media and his detractors and? And those are the people that King likes to sort of poke at and, and agitate. I mean, did he know what he was saying? Yeah, well, I think it's important to, I guess, to share how, how, how the comments came up. So um, it was a town hall meeting, and he was wrapping up. He was winding down on the hour that he had, and it was the next-to-last um, commenter or the last next-to-last questioner of the day. And it was a, a female minister who was from there in Cherokee County, and as she spoke, she let it be known that um, she and and the congressman have known each other for a few years and you know they kind of he you know he smiled and you know yeah I remember you kind of saying and and she cited how a Christian principle can you know it can help the nation and you know, she, her concern about Christians being persecuted things of that you know here in America and then it was his time to answer and and I, I mean so I don't know if it was her lead up that you know that but it, he was just honestly answering how he you know wanted to answer in the moment to that question so i, I don't think it was 
um, that he knew he was going to. It was it was the second time that he had cited Easter. He started his remarks with saying, "Hey, we just came off of Easter," and um, at the beginning of the hour and inside of that. And so that, that was the second time he returned to that topic. And obviously this comment was much more um, eye-opening. Todd, uh, I feel like I've asked you this question before, but is there a point at which all of these outrageous comments about Mexican valedictorians, white nationalism, and other people's babies reach a critical mass for Steve King? And then what happens? Well, I... I I'm not sure there is a critical mass anymore. I mean, given the the Trumpian world we live in, it's sort of uh, outrageous statements are kind of par for the course now. But, uh, you know, I, I'm just, I'm not sure how much this whittles away at King's sort of core base of support. And, and you know, as, as, you know, Brett sort of mentioned by the question that he received, this idea of, you know, sort of uh, persecution and being victims is, is pretty common in some of the rhetoric on the right right now, especially stuff you see on social media, just you know how, how Christians are being persecuted by the left. I mean, I think that's why we've got religious freedom bills that have come up in several states to sort of push back against expansion of civil rights and things like that, saying that, that that's more about you know uh, persecuting Christians for, for practicing their faith. So I think that, you know among his core supporters, I think that resonates, and I'm not sure it hurts him that much, but I, I guess the question is, you know, as it as it's been for months, if if Randy Feenstra and his other opponents can sort of use that use these moments to peel away some of those folks in the middle that maybe have voted for King in the past but aren't exactly enamored with him now, and and then the question moves to if you split those people up, does King end up winning the prim primary anyway? Which I think at this point is a good possibility. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's another instance where we get sort of a a troubling insight into the way this guy thinks of himself and how he 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 thinks of issues in general, but I'm not sure it, it changes the narrative all that much. It's it's you know it's hard to it's hard to even keep count of all the ridiculous things that he says. Well, and Brett, I see that Randy Feenstra, state senator from the Hall, is tweeting about King's comments. He's uh, ch challenging. Steve King in, in the Republican primary. I'm not sure if he's fundraising off it, but he tweeted, uh, quote, wouldn't it be great if just once Steve King was trending on Twitter for actually delivering results for Iowa, um, and he's using the, the hashtag retire King. Um, it, it, the last time I checked, uh, his tweet had been retweeted uh, more than a, about a dozen and a half times, which doesn't seem like it's gaining a lot of traction. But, uh, it, I mean, this this seems to be sort of a, a theme for Feenstra that King right. Uh, right. is not delivering results. Right. And it's interesting because, you know, for all these years when King has, has um, sought re-election, that um, what Feenstra is citing is what the Democrats would frequently cite, which is that King is not a, that Congressman King is not a an effective congressman, and um, here you have a Republican who's going with that that path. You know, like hey, let let's get some deliver some results here instead of being off on this on these tangents of of um, you know uh, interesting comments or or comments that a lot of people see as divisive or controversial. And you know, and I guess that that kind of plays into when you want to talk about effectiveness or delivering results. Then, then Feinstein can morph into um, remind people that you know King has been stripped.
activist committees, so how can it be effective? And I think it kind of plays into that whole that whole strand of thinking. And it's probably worth noting, uh, as we're talking about uh, Steve King in the 4th District, that former Iowa House Representative Jeremy Taylor, uh, who also is uh, in that 4th District primary, uh, has been up at the Capitol this week uh, talking to 4th Congressional District legislators, uh, uh, I guess maybe introducing himself or reintroducing himself and, and seeking support. So uh, he, he's... I don't know how much time he spent over in the, the Senate where Randy Feinstra, uh right. is, but he's been in the House uh, most of the day yesterday. So, um, and, and Brett, I don't know, is, is there news about Jeremy Taylor's campaign? Uh, bring us up to date. Well, sure. Well, um, not not much um, new in, in since the last week. Uh, last week, of course, on on the podcast, we talked about the fundraising that had that had been um, right. done here by the middle of the month. And uh, just to remind people, um, um, Feinster brought in two hundred sixty thousand. King was a little over sixty, and the Feinster, or I'm I'm sorry, Taylor was a little bit behind that, like upper fifty seven, fifty eight thousand. You know, so he's he's raising money. He's definitely working social media. He's getting. I've noticed that he's getting more. Um, off and on tweeting and such and posting to his Facebook. Um, haven't really, you know, seen a lot of campaigning, but he he has also announced, I guess, um, new news, James, um, uh, it would be not state-level um, legislators, but he got the endorsement of the mayor of Sergeant Bluff, which is a town here in Woodbury County, so he, he's working through there. I, I noticed he, um, in his messaging, he's talking about his, um, the fact that he's a chaplain, and a lot of his um, his um, tweets and such are about um, Christian values and, and such. And, and it is worth noting, and I, I did take a quick look at this, and I want to make sure I read this, but um, he did speak again. Uh, he did have a tweet that referenced what King said in Cherokee the other day, and he, uh, it is, I find this kind of st kind of thing sad. Daily, I understand that I'm not Christ as I seek to be more like him. So um, he's also uh, Taylor also is is very much a um, conservative on on the social socially and um, so but he thinks King went too far with with his comment there. Okay, interesting. Thanks. Um, moving along here, uh, mild mannered Representative Andy McKean rocked the Iowa House earlier this week when he announced that he has left the Republican Party and will register as a Democrat. For the moment, he is being alternate alternately referred to as no party specified or on roll call votes, there's no party indicated sometimes, and other times he's identified as a Democrat. So his defection doesn't change the balance of power in the House. Um, so what's the likely impact, if any, here, Todd? Well, yeah, the balance of power does remain a Republican majority. Uh, you know, it's I, I guess probably the biggest impact is that the Democrats were able to pick up a seat in the House without knocking a single door or spending a dime, they'll they'll have to defend it next year. But, you know, Andy McKean's a fairly well-known and well-liked lawmaker in that district. Switching parties will make a difference for him. It'll make it tougher. But I think they, you know, the Democrats will have a decent chance of, of retaining that seat. So, there, so there's that. Uh, you know, just like when this happened to Democrats in the 2000s a couple times, it's a, you know, it's a black eye for the majority and a, and a morale boost for the minority. And and you know, in this case, the the republic. You know, if you look at the two caucus, Republican caucuses, the Senate caucus Republicans has a, a large majority. The House is now has a smaller majority. 
So going into the election, you know, are they sort of hearing the footsteps and worried about, uh, you know, what's going to happen to their majority? And I think they are. And I think, you know, this this certainly didn't help. It's interesting talking to uh, Representative Todd Pritchard from Charles City, who is the Democratic minority leader uh, in the House. He uh, he said he was as surprised as anyone Tuesday when McKean announced this, that he did not know uh, McKean was switching parties. He uh, said he's been welcomed into the Democratic caucus uh, and that, uh, you know, he's has, what, like three decades of experience in the legislature. So he thinks he'll be a real valuable addition to the Democratic caucus. Um, McKean isn't the only Republican to switch parties in this age of Trump. However, most of those who have left the party have been suburban Republicans, uh, many of them women uh, who have cited the, the president's comments about women as a reason for switching parties. Obviously, that's not the case with McKean. He's from a rural, small-town district. Um, Todd, should, should Republicans be worried? Well, you know, I you know I think in the in the House in particular they're going to be they're going to be worried about the suburban districts they still hold. So any emphasis on you know this idea that Republicans are sticking with Trump no matter what, and here's a Republican who says he's not willing to do that. I mean that just sort of underscores the, the argument that that Iowa Republicans are t are tied too close to the president, and only a few of them have been brave enough to sort of step out and 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 call out his behavior and 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 uh, leave the party. So I guess in that it highlights, you know, Trump to those voters, I suppose it's, you know, uh, it's not a good thing for the House Republican caucus. Although I don't know that this is gonna, you know, spark some sort of widespread defection in rural areas. Uh, David Johnson left the party. He, he uh, the state, former state senator, he represented a rural district. I don't think that made, you know, Northwest Iowa any bluer, <laughs> but, uh, you know, these are all, none of, none of these, you know, all of these stories of, of Republicans leaving the party sort of, you know, raise questions in the minds of folks that are critical of Trump. Why aren't more Republicans leaving the party? And, and so the, the more that there's that debate, I guess probably the worse off it is, worse, you know, Republican candidates are going to have to engage in that debate. And I don't think they necessarily want to do that in, in some districts. If I step back here and sort of, put on my cynical glasses, uh, you know, I look at David Johnson, um, you know, I think it was probably questionable at his age whether he was going to seek re-election uh, after that term. Um, Annie McKean is sort of of that same age. He says he's going to run for re-election depending on what happens in the next year. Um, I don't know if, if two people is a trend that older Republicans who may not be looking to for their political careers are the only ones willing to stand up to Trump, um, but uh, I, I throw it out there for your consideration. <laughs> yeah, that's I mean, that's definitely <laughs> that's, here. that's that's well, uh, sure. de definitely a factor. I mean, that you're not you're not seeing the young and ambitious doing what what, what these guys did. Yeah, one one other way to flip that around is yeah, one other way to flip that around though would be to say that these you know these guys didn't come in, you know, half baked or, you know, they're very seasoned, you know, you know, two gener two decades of, of um legislative careers, so they, you know, potentially very thoughtful or and look at it. But but I, I hear what you're saying, James. But you know, initially Johnson he was only second 
two years into his four-year term and, and did, was originally did say he was running for re-election then backed away at, at the last minute. But, um, you know, I, I, I can I see it both ways, I guess. And, and I think you raise a good point. These are, these are people who um, the, the, part of the Republican Party today isn't the Republican Party they sort of grew up in. Uh, if, you, you know, right. if you go back 20 years, 40 years, uh, the Republican Party certainly has changed, and some of those people who were Republicans back then probably would not uh, get elected or even get, get nominated by the Republican Party today. So, but yeah, lot, lots of angles to consider there. And uh, now in the 2020 presidential race, we have another angle to consider. I guess Thomas, uh, former Vice President Joe Biden, has finally formally joined the race for the 2020 Democratic presidential nomination. Um, we've talked about Biden's prospects on this podcast. So other than about time, what can we say about his entrance into the race? Well, the race finally has its front runner. Um, right, as of right now, with uh, Joe Biden coming in, he, you know, he's been the highest polling candidate so far of any um, of any of the people who have been running, and he hasn't even declared up until this week, which has been rather interesting. So now he's he's come in, and um, you know, a lot of times I think it also should be noted that when a vice president, a former vice president, decides to run, oftentimes they end up getting that nomination. Some exceptions being. Dan Quayle, John C. Calhoun, and you know various other candidates. But most of the time, uh, when a vice president runs, they end up getting getting the party's nomination. And he has executive experience, he has Senate uh, experience, so it should be. He's kind of um, he's coming in as sort of like a force to be reckoned with, or kind of like the final boss, perhaps, for some of these Democratic candidates that are coming in. And the reaction around Iowa, anything significant that you're hearing? Well, I think uh, it's kind of been back and forth. I mean, but the big – actually, I've noticed more negative reaction than anything else. I mean, uh, the standard sort of uh, response from the Iowa uh, Republican uh, Party has basically kind of just said that, you know, he doesn't dis distinguish himself from any other coastal socialist running for president. And, uh, but also, I've seen a lot of people start uh, bringing up his history, specifically the Anita Hill hearings um, uh, that went down in the in the early 90s, as well as uh, what uh, he ran for president as well, I believe, in 1988, and ended up having to pull out because of allegations of plagiarism while he was in school, and so those allegations and a lot of his old baggage is kind of coming back up. So it should be uh, that seems to be what a lot of people are focusing on which could end up being a good thing if people are kind of focusing on his past right now, he'll be able to focus more on what he plans to do later on. But I'm not a soothsayer, so I can't say for certain. And uh, it appears that he'll be headed to Iowa. Um, the Associated Press is reporting that he'll uh, start in Cedar Rapids and a working class community, as they describe it. Um, and apparently that's sort of the focus of his campaign is winning back working class voters. Um, so I guess Tuesday and Wednesday, it looks like he'll be in Iowa, um, where he has a lot of and friends from his previous. And Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I mean, he's hitting key states. That's right, Thomas. Um, so I guess and we've got something to talk about next week uh, on mm -hmm. the podcast. Um, that's it for this edition of On Iowa Politics. I hope it's been worth your time. 
Thanks for listening. If you like the show, tell your friends and subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher. Fan mail may be sent to oniowapolitics at gmail.com. You can find us every week on the home pages of the Quad City Times, Sioux City Journal, Muscatine Journal, Mason City Globe Gazette, Waterloo, Cedar Falls Courier, and the Cedar Rapids Gazette. Jordan Sullivan will take us out. If you know a band or talented Iowa musician who should be on our show, send us a sound file and remember to follow us on Twitter and subscribe to On Iowa Politics on iTunes and Stitcher. For Thomas, Brett, Todd, and our producer, Stephen, I'm James Lynch. Thanks for listening.